This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Coming you to, to, to you today from the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. How do you judge the state of the economy? Well, new homes, housing starts is always one indicator. And now that economic indicator has been adopted by historians. Researchers have discovered that the rise and fall of the Roman Empire can actually be seen through... It's plumbing, sort of like it's housing starts. Joining me as we plunge into the world of ancient pipes, as well as other short subjects in science, is my guest, Annalie Newitz, tech culture editor for Ars Technica. Welcome back, Annalie. Hi, thanks for having me. So the Romans were a big fan of their plumbing systems. I mean, how did researchers use this to track the rise and fall of the empire? It's a really interesting story because we've known from written records and archaeology that the Romans used lead pipes. And this group of researchers in France wanted to know how many pipes they'd had at what times, how how extensive was the pipe system. And so the way that they did it was to use a technique that's often used in geology, which is that they took soil cores from one of the ancient uh, Roman harbors called Ostia. And all of the pipes in the city basically dumped out into the harbor, kind of the way sometimes happens today. Um, And they took the soil sample and they were able to see uh, layers of lead that corresponded to periods in the Roman Empire when uh, there was a lot of um, economic growth. And so the more lead they saw, the more pipes they speculated were in use during that period of time. And they saw a lot of really interesting patterns. Huh. So they could tell that how healthy the economy was or how well they were doing at any period? Basically, as the pipe system expanded, what it meant was that the empire was spreading because they got Mm. lead from the colonies in Europe. So they had to have an extensive trade network. And also maintaining a huge system of pipes is incredibly expensive. And there's actually this fantastic treatise that was written by uh, a Roman water commissioner um, in uh, the early part of the first millennium. Uh, His name was Frontinus. And he talked extensively about how there were all these troubles with maintaining the pipes. They had to recycle all of the pipes. And, of course, the ever-present problem of water piracy. Of course. Uh, But but, but does this shed any any new light on that old theory that the fall of the Roman Empire was caused by lead poisoning? You You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, there was a very popular uh, scientific theory um, in the 80s that uh, because the Romans had these extensive uh, lead pipe networks that um, Emperor Claudius, for example, uh, had lead poisoning because he was known uh, to have had a lot of physical disabilities and he had speech impediments. And so this uh, doctor theorized that maybe he had lead poisoning. Uh, However, since that time, since the 80s when this article was published, a number of researchers have debunked that claim. So I think consensus now is that probably there was not enough lead in the water to Mm -hmm. result in any kind of significant lead poisoning. And Mm -hmm. as I was saying earlier, the more we see of the pipes, the more indication we have of economic growth and prosperity in the empire. So it's really the pipes are correlated with the rise of the empire rather than the fall of the empire. Interesting. Let's let's move on to your next story. This is kind of cool also, where researchers figured out, figured out how Neanderthals were able to make tar. Why, why is that important? So Neanderthals were making tar 
about 200,000 years ago in Europe, which is long before Homo sapiens ever had access to tar technology. So you can thank Neanderthals for inventing mm -hmm. tar. And the thing that's really fun about this research is that the researchers did what's called experimental archaeology, which means they tried to use the tools available to Neanderthals at the time, which was basically stones, wood, fire, ashes, um, you know, the ability to dig holes, things like that. Um, and they tried to recreate how they would have made tar. And what they discovered was that it was actually relatively easy. They made it from birch bark. And it's the kind of thing that many different groups of Neanderthals probably stumbled on because they were heating birch up in the fire. Uh, and they would have found that if birch bark was exposed to heated embers, that eventually it would kind of extrude this like black sticky goo, uh, which was perfect for using to make tools because they were making compound tools that were... Mm. Uh, you know, two two or more components like a rock stuck to a stick, um, you know, a very carefully carved rock. Um, and so having a little bit of adhesive in there uh, really improved the performance of the tool. We were talking about this in the office the other day, and, and we were reminded of the La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles. And uh, there must have been other naturally occurring tar pits. Why didn't they, you know, why don't we think they got them na from nature? Well, we have evidence that they were making tar um, all throughout Europe. And naturally occurring tar pits are not, you know, everywhere. So there may have been some that stumbled mm -hmm. on tar pits and kind of connected the dot. But uh, it's much more likely that this was a technology that they stumbled on basically through heating up birch bark. And yeah. um, we know that that would not have been available to Homo sapiens back in Africa. There just wasn't birch available to them. So it's likely that Neanderthals made this great innovation, partly out of luck, um, but partly because mm. they were really smart. <laughs> I'll go with that. Uh, let, let, let's move on. Uh, researchers now suspect that women were the key to spreading cultural innovations in the Bronze Age. How did they arrive at that conclusion? This is a great study uh, because it was such an unexpected finding. Um, some researchers were looking at uh, a large number of women who'd been buried in the Lech Valley. Uh, in It's a river valley in very sort of southern Bavaria in Germany. Um, and there had been continuous settlement there from the Neolithic through the Bronze Age. So basically, this great turning point in civilization when people started to manufacture bronze. And they analyzed these uh, skeletons of women genetically and chemically and found that they almost all had come from far away to live there. They were all from, they had been born in other places. And what that suggested was that uh, there was a common practice of um, exogamy where women would marry outside of their group, out of their village, and then journey to uh, their new family and come to live with them. And the thing that always comes up when you hear this is it makes you think, well, but maybe women, that means that they weren't treated very well or they, you know, they were kind of forced to leave home. But actually, the other thing they found was that um, matriarchal matriarchal lineage was very important in these burials. And they found many generations of women being buried next to each other, often with similar kinds of grave goods. And uh, there's one grave they found where there were two women who may have been separated by as many as 10 generations who'd been buried together, and they knew they were the same family from analyzing them genetically. So these people very much valued 
uh, women's relatedness to each other, mm -hmm. but they also brought women in from outside for marriage. And those women would have brought lots of different cultural innovations with them and would have helped to spread knowledge about things like making bronze, for example. Yeah. Could you, could you give us any more details on what kinds of innovations we're talking about? So it could have, a lot of it was probably cultural. Um, when I said, you know, the idea that they might have helped people understand how to make bronze, they would have brought ideas about how to make new tools. They might have spread uh, new languages. Um, there's a, still mm. a lot of uh, variety of dialects spoken uh, in that river valley today. Um, they would have brought uh, understanding of how to make ceramics. Uh, probably uh, what kinds of foods you could cook and how, which, again, at that time was really cutting-edge stuff, having ceramics, yeah. having bronze. That would have been you know, just like having a really awesome Android phone. And so <laughs> now we know that, that the primary driver of cultural sharing in that area was probably from women who would come from far away and bring you information about you know, cool new innovations and in how to you know, mix copper with arsenic or whatever, however they were making bronze at the time. Very interesting. And our last story is uh, a, another wild story, so to speak. It's not only do wild dogs vote, but they do it by sneezing. <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> so I'm not making um, this up, right? <laughs> no, no you're, this is um, this is appears to be true based on the evidence. So a group of researchers in Botswana went to um, a national park and were following uh, a group of wild dogs around for about a year and recorded these social gatherings that the dogs have. They travel in packs. And they have these social gatherings called rallies where one dog kind of calls the rally and then the dogs vote on whether to go hunting or stay there. And the way they vote is they make this kind of sneeze noise. It's it's not like a human sneeze. It's kind of a ch noise, um, which dog owners are probably familiar with, even though these wild dogs are only distantly related to domestic dogs. Um, and what the researchers found, they recorded about 68 of these rally sessions and the more sneezes they heard, the more likely the dogs were to go off hunting. Sometimes they would stay. There weren't enough yeah. sneezes. However, if the pack leader is the dog that called the meeting, that called the rally and, and gave a sneeze, they didn't need as many sneezes to get going on this hunting uh, expedition. So some votes count more than others among wild dogs. <laughs> I've I never that, heard of that in any other species. But <laughs> I don't know. You look at Congress. You might, <laughs> you might change your mind a little bit. <laughs> and, and, and thanks, Emily. I just want to point out that uh, you, you know that, that Cassini will be ending his 20-year-long mission next Friday. And uh, we've learned a lot about Saturn from that orbiter over the years, haven't we? I mean, that's going to be sort of a very sad event, isn't it? It is going to be sad. It's been 20 years of a great space robot, and uh, I, I still remember when it first spotted um, water spouts coming from Enceladus, uh, Saturn's moon, uh, which was the first time that we really had an inkling that there was an ocean underneath the ice on that moon. And, you know, it's it's found, they've, we've learned just so much from Cassini, so I'm going to be very sad to see it go. Yeah, because we're going to be uh, doing special coverage of, of Cassini when it, when it uh takes its final plunge, and it's slated to do it on Friday, Science Friday. So we'll be doing a lot of coverage on that. Um, it'll be, it is kind of sad because we have learned so much about the rings and, the sat and you know, about the, the moons and things like that, and scientists have spent so many years of their time studying it. So 
It's, yeah, it's, and it's going to take a dive right into the atmosphere on, on Saturn. So I'll be tuning in next week to hear what you guys find out about right. the last moments. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Annalie Newitz, Tech Culture Editor for Ars Technica. And as I say, next week we're going to do a special 20-year anniversary of the Cassini mission. The orbiter showed us the little lakes of Titan, geysers on Enceladus, and, of course, the gorgeous rings of Saturn up close and personal and we've been covering Cassini since the beginning, and we'll be watching it at the end with the producers live on the scenes at NASA's JPL. And so we want you to tune in next week for special coverage, interviews, reminiscing, a celebration of everything this spacecraft has shown us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about chicken. Don't go away. We'll see you after the break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Chicken. You know, it's certainly a staple of the American diet, but it always, it wasn't always. No, it wasn't always that way. Remember the promise of a, a chicken in every pot? That was promised back in the day because few people could afford the high price of chicken. Chicken dinner was not a really common meal as it is today because there were too few chickens. The price then was just too high. So in the early 20th century, chickens as food were the byproduct the leftover of eggs for farmers. So once the you know the, the hen stopped laying eggs, they used them. They ate them. So so how did chicken become the go-to Sunday dinner meal? My next guest writes about the secret ingredient that might surprise you. We're talking about antibiotics. In her new book, she traces how antibiotics propped up the poultry industry and has contributed to the current antibiotic crisis. And here with that story is Marion McKenna. Her new book is called Big Chicken, the Incredible Story of How Antibiotics Created Modern Agriculture and Changed the Way the World Eats. Welcome to Science Friday. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's really a very interesting story. I learned a lot of new things about chickens and antibiotics and the whole history of chickens. Um, why did you focus on the chicken industry? Every, I mean, every type of livestock gets dosed with antibiotics, right? It's true, but chicken taught the rest of agriculture, the rest of meat production, how to use antibiotics. Chickens were the first animals to get what we call growth promoter antibiotics experimentally. And, and they really bracket this story in an amazing way because chicken, of course, is the meat that we eat more than any other in the United States. You know, chicken nuggets are, are a staple of everyone's diet. But chicken is actually passing out of antibiotic use. Uh, in the U.S., uh, major chicken production is kind of sacrificing or turning away from antibiotics, and maybe it will teach the rest of meat production that lesson, too. Let's go through some of the history of this, because in your book, it's, it's quite fa uh, fascinating. Uh, going back to the time, you know, we think normally when we think about animals and being, they're, they're fed antibiotics, right? Uh, but you were talking about how chickens were dipped in antibiotics. Tell us that story, why they were dipped in it. This is a crazy story. And when I first started stumbling across it, you know, reading footnote after footnote and seeing references to this, I couldn't believe it. So... Antibiotics come out in the from the mid to the end of the 1940s, and almost right away they're being given to animals as part of their diets, as you mentioned, in order to make them fatter and to protect them against diseases in the, the very large farms that are growing up at that time. And it seems to be so safe, no one can see any downside, that a couple of, of researchers and food production companies start to think, if it if it works inside the animals, then surely it would work just as well or maybe better 
outside the animals and the the people who actually the company that started this whole antibiotic use, what was Letterly Laboratories, a part of American Cyanamid starts using its drug, one of the first tetracyclines, as a bath, like a brine, for chicken and for fish. They dip raw, butchered chicken and fish into a solution of antibiotics and then package it and send it off to supermarkets. Their idea is that the antibiotic on the surface of the flesh will kill spoilage bacteria. And so instead of having chicken on the shelf for just or in the cold case for two or three days, you might be able to keep it there for two or three weeks. Wow. Two or three weeks. And, it's and absurd. So, and that, that was, uh, that, as you mentioned in the book, that was an advertising way, right, to, to show that our chicken's better than your chicken because it has been what's being called acronized or acronization. Right, exactly. Now, I had never heard of this process. And, and in fact, I, among the many people that I spoke to for the book, there were very, very few people who knew about it. I even checked with the archivist of the FDA, and, and they had no record of it. But then I looked back in old newspapers, and in plenty of advertisements in local newspapers for local grocery stores, the, the kind of advertisements that say, pork chops are on sale this week, and three for two on bunches of bananas, there would be the seal acronym. Our chicken is acronized. They were really proud of it. That's crazy. Uh, our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SIDE-TALK, if you want to uh, get in on the conversation, talking with uh, Marilyn McKenna, author of uh, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture, changed the way the, the world eats. Um, now, th there had to be scientists back then who saw this happening who said, don't you know what you're doing? You're going to create these super bacteria, right? I mean, we're, they, they know how this stuff works. So one of the interesting things to me in researching this story, which is a story that starts at the beginning of the antibiotic era in the 1940s and continues right up to the present day, is that I had the impression that talking about antibiotic use in agriculture as, as a, a thing that we should avoid and criticizing it and mm -hmm. linking it to superbugs was a pretty recent development. And I was really shocked to find out that right from the start, some prescient researchers were saying this is going to be a mistake. This is going to womp up bacteria into superbugs. In fact, colleagues of the chap who started all of this, who, who made the very first experiment, warned in their own company that, that this should not happen, that there was going to be a negative result. But profit won out, and, and we got to the situation we have in agriculture today. Hmm. Um, uh, let's talk about chickens today. Chickens today don't look like anything you, li you, li you like to see in the wild. They're, they're grown for their breast meat, so just like turkeys, they're out of proportion. And you describe them as olives on toothpicks. <laughs> and, you, and you trace it back to something called Chicken of Tomorrow contest. The Chicken so, of Tomorrow. I, I, I just love this story. So... And giving antibiotics routinely to farm animals starts a lot of things rolling. Uh, it, it starts the, the concentration of animals into barns. It starts the efficiency of modern meat production. But chickens, as you mentioned when, um, when we started, chickens be were initially the things that just laid eggs. And by the time a chicken is done laying eggs, she's kind of scrawny and not necessarily very tasty. All of her energy has gone to the eggs. And so the chicken... This nascent chicken industry wanted to come up with a tastier chicken, a chicken that people would 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 pursue, would would want to eat, and so they held this contest. It was sponsored by the A and P supermarkets with the assistance of the USDA to create a chicken that was 
that just had more meat on it, that was more muscular. They described the ideal chicken as having breasts that you could slice like a steak. Wow. And so from 1948 to 1951, they held a nationwide conference, uh, sorry, a nationwide contest in which people competed to come up with just chunkier, meatier chickens, chickens especially with the breast meat that Americans want to eat. And most of the chickens that are now produced in meat production in the United States are descended from the genetic lines that were developed for that contest more than 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. You also talk about so many interesting stories in there. Uh, uh, let me get back to a point first that, that you made at the beginning, and that is the the race to not put antibiotics in chickens. Now, I would think it's because people are more health conscious, and they don't want you know they 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 look for more natural products. Is that the reason why we're seeing more of this now? I think so. Uh, You know, it's only been in the past couple of years in the United States that we've really started to turn against the routine use of antibiotics in the the animals that we turn into meat and eat. And that's really interesting because Europe has had a ban on at least some of these antibiotics for more than 10 years now. But in the United States, for a variety of reasons, any kind of government action was held at bay for a very long time. But in its absence... A consumer movement grew up um, out of healthcare institutions and school systems and farmers and chefs and concerned parents all saying, we think these practices put our, our children, our families at risk. They are contributing to the rise of superbugs. They are reinforcing a system of farming that is not healthy for animals or for humans. We want to see this change. And they started yeah. to vote with their dollars. Yeah. Uh, the FDA only started moving on this issue, what, about three years ago? And that's right. In the last days of 2013, the, the FDA announced sort of a, a break in the long stalemate between government and industry over these practices. And the final version of the rules, which took growth promoter antibiotics out of the mix in the United States, but still allow preventive antibiotics to, to keep diseases at bay in crowded barns and feedlots, those only went into effect in January 1st of this year. Now that's so much for, for this country. What about other countries you know, that always say, well, we're not as developed as you are. Let us get our own chickens. We want, that we want to be able is, to eat like Americans, you know? You know, um, to me, the, the international fight that's coming over the use of antibiotics in meat animals really is very reminiscent of the fights over climate change, not just in the sense that this is an enormous problem and what any one person does feels so insignificant, but also that... The, the industrialized West is far ahead of the global South in this, and, and the industrialized West is, is saying, well, you know, we, we had all these massive cattle farms, and we had our juicy steaks, and developing world, we would like you to forgo that part of your evolution. And the developing world is appropriately saying back, wait a minute, our people want their juicy steaks too. We, wa- yeah. too, want to have factory farms. We want to have lots of cheap meat. How we solve that is a really important question for the next few years. Let's talk about when this idea that antibiotics in chicken might be linked to human illness. When did that start to happen? I, you, you recounted a really interesting detective story dealing not with the consumers but with an outbreak of illnesses in workers in the chicken processing plant. Right. So this actually goes back to that, that weird process of dipping chickens in raw chicken and antibiotics, that process of acronizing, a, a very alert 
physician in Seattle in the, the mid-1950s, someone who had been one of the first disease detectives at the CDC, um, noticed that he was hearing, he worked at the public health department, and he was hearing from doctors all around Seattle, when Seattle was a smaller city than it is now, and they were all treating workers in slaughterhouses who had strange lesions on their arms uh, and hands. And it turned out that they all worked for slaughterhouses that were using this antibiotic dipping process. What had happened was that the chickens and the various farms were already getting antibiotics for all the reasons we've been talking about. And then they got an extra dose of antibiotics as they were being disassembled into meat. And that was enough to turn bacteria on the birds and in the birds that was coming out as they were disassembled into superbugs that then were affecting the workers. And because they were scattered around the city, it took someone who had knowledge of the whole city as as a a public health department epidemiologist to put all the pieces together. Was this a salmonella outbreak we're talking about here? Uh, and, and we know salmonella outbreaks are tied to antibiotics in the food system. That makes sense. Uh, but this is also affecting our health in ways we might not think of in, in an increase in, in non-foodborne illness, correct? Right. This is one of the, I think, one of the most troublesome um, aspects of this problem is that we, I think over the years, we've almost become accustomed to the idea that we have large, very large outbreaks of foodborne illness in this country as food production got both more concentrated and also spread its products further across the country. There there was a very large outbreak just a few years ago of chicken originating in California. Victims ended up in, I think, about 30 states. Mm. So, So we think of, you know, salmonella and campylobacter and so forth as things that we are risking when we eat, even if they're antibiotic resistant. But The newest research into the possible effects of this widespread use of antibiotics routinely in in meat animals points to a completely different effect, and that is to what some people would consider an epidemic of urinary tract infections and kidney infections coming from them and other more serious conditions like septic shock, because the bacteria get into your guts just as they do for a foodborne illness, Um, but then they exit your guts and get into your urinary system and climb up to your kidneys and resist treatment because they're antibiotic resistant. That one estimate is that possibly 10% of the the UTIs and, and kidney infections caused by E. coli in this country are caused by this foodborne mm. antibiotic resistance, which would mean it could be 600,000 cases a year in the United States, mm. not linked back to farming because the, the trail of evidence is too long and thin. Mm. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. Talking with uh, author Marin McKenna, author of the new book uh, called Big Chicken. We have some people who are not chicken to call in, so to speak. I'm sorry. I had to get that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Daniel in, in, in Kentucky. Hi, Daniel. Hey, how are you? Hi there. Well, I had a question. I've been in um, chicken production for 20 years now. Um, we've, raised, we've, had, we've, we've housed 24,000 chickens per house. And there's been this big concern with antibiotic residues in the meat that they consume. And, of course, we've been antibiotic-free for 10 or 11 years now. And But in cattle, we always go raise cattle, and we do use antibiotics when they're needed. But 
the blame is that superbugs and humans are being blamed for antibiotic residue in the meat that people consume. And I was wondering if there is any studies that actually reinforce that or confirm it. Mm. All right. Good question. So there's a bunch of things in your question. Let me see if I can pick them apart. The first is, and congratulations on being um, a a no antibiotics ever producer. That is an amazing evolution in poultry production in this country. And it's, I met so many farmers, most of whom are not mentioned in the book, um, who have been through this journey. And it's been fascinating how excited farmers are to make that change. Mm -hmm. So... So first, the question of residue. What we're talking about here is really not antibiotic residue in the meat. That's something that's actually regulated by the federal government, and there are quite strict penalties. The the problem is that the animals get antibiotics through their feed and water. The, The antibiotics go into their guts, and they affect the bacteria that are already resident in the gut, and then they exit the animals as manure. So the manure either is in the guts when they're slaughtered and gets on the meat, or it passes into the environment and carries the bacteria into dust, into groundwater, surface water, you know, moves away from the farm. In some cases, even moves away on the clothing and skin of farm workers. Mm-hmm. The, the, the um, evidence that that transit happens and that people are made ill by those resistant bacteria that have been caused to happen in the animal is really strong now. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of scientific studies. And the, the, the evidence has gotten stronger as molecular laboratory tools have gotten more sort of fine-grained so that now you can do whole genome sequencing and actually track a, a, a wow. particular um, plasmid, a particular piece of DNA back through the chain of evidence. You know, in, at, when these concerns first arose in the 1950s, these were observational epidemiologic studies, but now, now we, have we, we can actually do yeah. lab yeah. work to back yeah. it up. Mary, interesting book. Marin McKenna's new book is called Big Chicken, The Incredible Story of How Antibiotics Created Modern Agriculture, Changed the Way the World Eats. And you can read an excerpt from her book on our website at sciencefriday.com slash chicken. Thank you very much, Marin, for taking time to be with us today. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the black-footed ferrets, once numbered a fewer than 20 before captive breeding saved the species. Can ranchers in the West embrace the pesky prairie dog if it means saving the ferret? Coming up after the break, stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Poke your head into a prairie dog den, and you might be surprised to see something that is not a prairie dog. Perhaps a burrowing burrowing owl, a snake, a cute little face with a black mask, maybe with a dead prairie dog dangling out of its jaws. That's the black-footed ferret. And not too long ago, they were nearly extinct. In fact, in 1981, there were just 18 of them. Fast forward a couple of decades, and there are more than 500 ferrets in captivity and the wild. And that is thanks to careful captive breeding and reintroduction efforts. But it wasn't an easy process, and there are lots of challenges remaining for this plucky predator Take the fact that they rely entirely on prairie dogs for food, and people who depend on the land for a living, they don't have much fondness for prairie dogs. There's also this little plague related to the black plaque death that's uh, killing off prairie dogs and ferrets alike. There were actually as many as 1,500 ferrets just a few years ago until the plague. 
So what's a biologist to do? Can the black-footed ferret make it back to prosperity? I have a couple of guests here to tackle that question. John Hughes is a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Black-Footed Ferret Recovery Program. Welcome to Science Friday, John. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Kathy Lucas, daughter and spokesperson for one ranching family that has helped bring black-footed ferrets back to their slice of western Kansas. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, John, I just said there were 18 ferrets left in 1981, but that really is not the whole story, is it? How, how were those ferrets ever found? Uh, that It's a really compelling conservation story, at least in, in my humble opinion. Uh, ferrets have always been a rare species. They were relatively late, described to science, primarily due to their nocturnal habits. And the most studied population prior to 1981 came from south-central South Dakota. Uh, and in fact, a, an earlier effort at captive breeding took place with those animals. And unfortunately, the last animal died in captivity in 1979. And it was thought at that time that the species was extinct. And the, the rediscovery of ferrets in 1981 uh, was uh, a complete accident, if you will. Uh, there's a ranching family near Matitsi, Wyoming, uh, John and Lucille Hogg, uh, having breakfast on their back porch uh, one morning, and their dog, appropriately named Shep, uh, drug a carcass up. And it was uh, kind of a strange-looking animal, and John Hogg didn't think much of it, uh, threw it on his trash pile. Uh, his wife, Lucille, retrieved it and took it to a local taxidermist, uh, who knew the story of black-footed ferrets, contacted the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, and that's what kicked off the rediscovery of the black-footed ferret, attributable to a dog named Shep. Wow, that is a great story. Um, you know, if you, anybody who looks at a picture of the ferret, it's such a, uh, the black-footed one, it's such a cute little creature. How did we let them get into such a bad spot in the first place? I, I, the ferret's Achilles heel, I guess, is its, a, its extreme specialization. Uh, the ferret's predecessor, well, its, uh, its closest living relative is the Siberian polecat of uh, Eastern Asian steppes, and it's thought that the ferret's predecessor crossed the Bering Land Bridge into North America and encountered uh, prairie dogs, which is kind of a hyperabundant prey species. And upon encountering them, they became an extreme specialist and really wholly dependent on prairie dogs, both for food and shelter. And since prairie dogs uh, have been long regarded as an agricultural pest, um, as prairie dogs went, so did ferrets. And while prairie dogs are uh, much more adaptable to changing conditions, ferrets due to their territoriality are not. And as uh, habitat was lost and prairie dog uh, control occurred, uh, ferrets mm. declined along with it. Mm -hmm. Kathy, your father, Larry Haverfield, introduced the first and, and so far the only wild population of black-footed ferrets back to Kansas on your family ranch, and this turned into a bit of a war, didn't it? Yes, they call it the prairie dog wars. It lasted for about six years. And tell us about that. Why, why was your father motivated if it was this difficult? Um... Well, I think he just had a strong belief as a rancher that prairie dogs were part of the ecosystem and a keystone species on top of that, which meant that a lot of native animals and birds relied on the prairie dog for mm. food and shelter. And so, and he did rotation grazing and was a big believer in that. And he believed prairie dogs helped with that. And 
made the grass more nutritious, aerated the soil, and rain would percolate in the burrows of the prairie dogs, all things that he thought contributed to successful ranching. You talked about the, the, the wars. Give us an idea of the intensity of the wars. What happened? Um, well, I can tell you how it got started. Um, the county sent letters to Dad and other landowners saying, get rid of the, we're going to come on your property and um, get rid of the prairie dogs and bill you. And if you don't pay the bill, then we'll put it as a lien on your property taxes. So wow. Dad was reading uh, his letter, and Gordon Barnhart, one of the neighboring landowners, had received a similar letter and called Dad. And Gordon asked Dad if he wanted to fight it, and Dad said, yes, but I don't know where to start. And Gordon said he knew of a Wichita attorney that might be able to help, and that was Wichita environmental law attorney Randy Rathbun. Hmm. So this happened back in uh, 2005, so they met up with Randy, and he said he'd do what he could. But in the meantime, the county commissioners had a meeting uh, open to the public about what they called the prairie dog issue. And Dad went, and in time he stood up and said he liked prairie dogs. Well, that was not a popular thing to say, and in the local newspaper, the big headline was 99 to 1, with Dad being the only one for the prairie dogs. Plus, it went even further than that. The New York Times had an article which read, um, had a uh, headline of, in Kansas, a line is drawn around a prairie dog town. So the ride began, and Dad said in his mind, it was like being on an old 1950s bus with curved lines, and that attorney Randy was the driver, Dad and Mom and the neighboring landowners, Gordon and Martha Barnhart and Maxine Blank, uh, were the passengers. And then Audubon of Kansas supported these ranchers, um, plus their executive director, Ron, was kind of like a conductor on the bus. So in November of 2005, a letter was sent to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about the possibility of reintroduction of blackfoot ferrets on the ranch. And Dad said in his imaginary bus um, that he thought of that here now the Kansas Wildlife Federation had joined us, and Randy as driver would say, here we go, <laughs> which is what Randy would always say as they went into numerous court hearings. And sometimes the road was smooth, and sometimes right. it was bumpy. But the defenders of wildlife uh, came on board when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, opened up for public opinion about the reintroduction project in Kansas, and 16,000 defenders sent positive messages, and in time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released 14 endangered Blackfoot ferret kits on, in uh, hmm. 2007. And, and John, the, the ferret struggle ended up more complicated in, in just what it eats. I, I mentioned that there was a plague, too, that was devastating. Yes, and you know, as Kathy mentioned, you know, public attitudes are a significant challenge to ferret recovery. We're making you know good progress in uh, cooperation with our partners in that regard, uh, but plague kind of really knocked us for a loop. And this is the same plague that wiped out the population in Eastern Europe in the or in Europe in the Middle Ages, and you know, like Asian carp or cheatgrass or zebra mussels, it's an invasive species to North America. And as such, native species like 
black-footed ferrets and prairie dogs uh, do not have immunity to it. And plague has kind of slowly marched its way uh, eastward. It, it was thought to have been introduced uh, via shipborne rats in San Francisco around 1900. And it's it's really ubiquitous throughout uh, the black-footed ferrets range mm. now and wow. directly lethal to ferrets and prey dogs both. Is there anything, any medication? I understand there, there's a vaccine in development now? Uh, yes, there's a number of tools that we utilize. Uh, one and has been utilized for quite some time, and it's an application of an insecticide, deltamethrin, uh, to prey dog burrows to kill fleas, and fleas being the primary vector or transmitter of plague. Um, an infected flea bites a prey dog or a ferret and infects it with plague, and then it dies and spreads throughout the system. Uh, that has been somewhat successful. It it has allowed us to hang on to ferret populations at several of mm -hmm. our kind of landmark sites. Uh, it is labor-intensive and expensive, and unfortunately, you know, it's never a good idea to be putting out a broad-spectrum insecticide year after year. Yeah. And through some recent developments uh, spearheaded by the U.S. Geological Survey's uh, National Wildlife Health Center and several other partners, such as Colorado Parks and Wildlife, have developed an oral vaccine uh, administered to prairie dogs uh, to treat what's called sylvatic plagues. Um, sylvatic refers to plague in a wildlife population. Uh, initial results are quite promising. If the rodents uh, consume a bait, uh, then they're immunized for their entire life uh, against plague. So we see this as a very important management tool uh, to keep ferrets and prey dogs on the landscape where they're tolerated. So, so when do you think and, and what will, what's it going to take to get the black-footed ferret off the endangered list at this point? I, our recovery goals as a program are relatively modest. We need 3,000 animals in the wild in nine of the 12 states where it originally occurred, uh, with 10 populations numbering more than 100 individuals each. And we feel that we can do that on a total of 500,000 acres across the 12 states if those acres are purposely managed for plague. And this takes a lot of cooperation between partners such as state agencies, uh, non-governmental organizations, and, of course, uh, landowners like the Haverfields. Why, why can't we just use the public lands for restoring the black-footed ferret? Well, there just there simply aren't enough of them. If mm. you uh, historically ferrets occurred uh, in association with three prey dog species: black-tailed prey dogs, white-tailed prey dogs, and Gunnison's prey dogs. Uh, Black-tailed uh, being by far the most important. About eighty percent of ferrets uh, occurred with blacktails. Uh, Black-tailed prey dogs are the ones that you see flying into Denver International Airport and across the Great Plains. And most of the Great Plains is uh, privately owned. And uh -huh. if we're going to recover the ferret, we're going to need partners like the Haverfields to get it done. And it's, it's up to us to develop innovative tools to do that. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking about the recovery of the black-footed ferret with uh, John Hughes and Kathy Lucas. Uh, John, how do you argue for the value of prairie dogs and ferrets to ranchers who are worried about the value of their cattle or their crop? What you, what's the argument you use there? That's a tough one. You know, for, for many, many years, uh, prairie dogs have been regard, widely regarded as an agricultural pest. In fact, uh, federal and state agencies uh, initiated very large-scale prairie dog control programs around the turn of the century. Uh, those have been largely discontinued. Um, as Kathy mentioned, her dad was very innovative in that he found ways to work with prairie dogs rather than against them. 
Uh, that being said, you know, the private landowner community is much more diverse than a lot of folks give it credit mm-hmm. for being. Uh, the next neighbor over may may say, no way, no how, you know, no prairie dogs can ever exist here. The next neighbor over may say, well, I'd be willing to support prairie dogs if it was incentivized, or there may be folks like the Haverfields that have uh, figured out how to work with them. And our challenge is finding enough folks uh, mm-hmm. to support prairie dogs and and accommodate that relatively mm-hmm. modest recovery goal. Kathy Lucas, you have you have the ferrets on your property. Have you have you ever seen one running around? Yes, and it is a memorable event um, because. It happened in the dark, and their emerald eyes are just so noticeable, and it moved so quickly that I thought it was two, but my dad said no. Um, Because they moved so quick, you saw the same ferret, but his eyes in two different places. Does your your dad feel vindicated now that, that, you know, he fought so hard for them? Well, my father passed away um, in 2014, but the family... um, is carrying on his legacy and I believe that he was proud of the fact that under Kansas law a precedent was set after this six-year battle legal battle and that um, meaning the Endangered Species Act um, preempts the 1901 Kansas statute which required eradication mm-hmm. and, and so, John I guess I guess this is a story of that you don't have to have so much government interference and that people can learn how to do things cooperatively. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of folks in rural areas, you know, look at something like a national program like the Blackfooted Ferret Recovery Program and assume that it's universal in application and they're going to make me have prairie dogs or they're going to make me change my operation uh, really, it's it is voluntary and incentive based, and we don't need every person out there to support prairie dogs and ferrets, but we just need enough uh, to support that recovery goal. So it's um, again yeah. very voluntary, and we're we're very grateful for landowners like uh, the Haverfields that are willing to support ferret recovery. And, and just to be sure, as we wrap up here, these are not the cute furry things, the regular ferrets you might see in the in the pet store. These are wild animals, right? Yes, very much so. And they're not you're not going to take them home and make pets out of these. No, like- that would be pretty impossible. They uh they're a vicious predator. They're they're designed to be killing machines and they do that very well. Um and you know they while they are yeah. related to domestic ferrets, you know, they're uh, they're a force of nature, a pretty remarkable animal. Well, you guys tell a remarkable story. Let me thank both of you. John Hughes, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Kathy Lucas, daughter of Larry Haverfield, and she's a spokesperson for the Haverfield family. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you. And thank good luck you. In, good luck in your work. Uh, Charles Barkos is our director, a senior producer, Christopher Taliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, Katie Haller, Rich Kmart technical director, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz, our engineers at the controls at the studios of our production partners at the City University of New York. Out here in Wichita, Kansas, we have a lot of people to thank. John Cyphers, Deborah Fraser, Sarah Jane Crespo, Fletcher Powell, and everybody here at KMUW who have been so helpful to us this week. If you want to email us, our email address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. Of course, uh, everything we talk about, it's Friday every day of the week now up on our website. You know how to reach us, 
through our podcast anywhere you get them and uh, all our educational materials up on our site at sciencefriday.com. I'm Ira Flato in Wichita.